Hello and welcome to People, Places, Power with me, Nick Cull. And me, Simon Anhalt. In this podcast, we talk about issues of international reputation, foreign policy, and a few other things along the way. And today, we're going to focus on a region, uh, the region of the Gulf, and uh, think about the uh, image of the principal countries of the Persian Gulf. Now, Simon, this is an interesting case because uh, the region has such a strong identity. And I, I wonder, to what extent do you think the regional identity of the Persian Gulf overshadows the individual identities of the countries and other places located uh, within that region? Well, to a great extent. And of course, uh, you've already put up the backs of an enormous number of people by referring to it as the Persian Gulf. Um, uh, Whoops. <laughs> it, it, it does indeed have Iran or Persia on one side of it, but uh, it, it has um, a bunch of others on the other. Um, the terminology, the, the, the trickiness of the terminology is very instructive, I think, here, um, because this is a region which has been uh, the, the, um, the, the instrument of foreign powers for as long as anybody can remember. And from certain points of view, it's named in certain ways and viewed in certain ways. The fact that, for example, um, in, in Europe, in the West more broadly, uh, we continue to call the wider region um, the Middle East. Um, and, uh, of course, that's a phrase which has its own logic attached to it. Um, it's east of where we are, um, and therefore we're seeing it in terms of its relationship to us. Um, West Asia, I think, is perhaps a, a slightly more useful phrase because it doesn't um, um, it, it doesn't position it in contrast to another region. Um, but of course, there are there are differences, um, and the the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council member states, aren't all the countries in the region, and um, the um, the um, the Gulf um, uh, doesn't define the whole region either. There's the Arab world, somewhat larger and owing a great deal more in common. But for the for the time being, let's just be general about it and say that that whole area of West Asia, generally speaking, is an area that's not well known and not well understood by the rest of the world. Um, and that's partly because um, a lot of the countries within it have been somewhat inward looking and minded their own business. Um, for a very long time, and relatively little information has got out. Even though they're economically powerful, um, people know relatively little about them, Saudi Arabia being the best possible example, which has been pretty much close to foreigners um, until very recently. So the consequence of all of that um, is that there's a general sense that it's a troubled area, that's almost a cliché, um, that it's, uh, it, it, it suffers from a number of problems, and it's the source of a number of problems, but that's about as far as most people's real knowledge and understanding of the area goes. And that's the classic recipe for what we've previously talked about in, in, in other editions of the podcast, what we sometimes call regional brand effect. In other words, the region itself is perceived in a somewhat neg negative light. In fact, let's be honest, a very negative light in many other parts of the world. And the consequence of that is that individual countries within the region um, are assigned that negative image, even though people know next to nothing about them. Of course, um, as with any other region, 
um, you have to say, well, who exactly are we talking about here? Which audience are we referring to? Because clearly, if you're talking to uh, Muslims, or, uh, if you're talking about Muslims around the world, their view of the Gulf, of the Arab world, um, of the GCC, of West Asia is going to be very different from the view held by, for example, Christian Americans or, um, or, or Europeans or what have you. But broadly speaking, um, it's an unlucky region with an unlucky image that makes it extraordinarily difficult for individual countries um, to break out of that image and say something new about themselves or prove something new about themselves. Um, easier perhaps on the level of individual cities, which is something uh, I know we're going to talk about later. So if, but if we look at the, at the at that region or sub-region, whose image would you say is strong or shows up as strongest in the Nation Brands Index? Um, it, would it be UAE that has the strongest uh, individual image? Uh, yes and no. It, it depends a little bit on the terminology that one uses. Um, if, if we call it the United Arab Emirates, it actually doesn't rank very high at all, simply because the name of the, of the, the nation state is not well known. Um, Emirates is a well-known word because of the airline and because of the um, sponsorship of, of, of football teams and football stadia. But not very many people, according to the research, are aware of the fact that this is actually um, a, a collection of, of Emirates. It's a country called the United Arab Emirates, of which Dubai is one of its emirates. Most people don't understand that distinction. And so UAE doesn't rank quite as high in the Nation Brands Index as you would expect it to, given people's awareness and generally quite positive views towards some of its, um, some of its composite parts. Um, uh, Saudi Arabia ranks um, among the lowest, um, or at least among the lower end, but that's not because it's less well known, it's because it's more well known and it's got a more negative image. So um, a lot of people, and again, we have to be very careful about which people we're talking about, but particularly in the West, a lot of people um, feel a great sense of mistrust or even fear of Saudi Arabia, and that's what places it low in the ranking. In other words, it's a negative image, not a weak image. UAE has a somewhat weak image, but because it's got the word Arab in it, and Arab, of course, in most languages or in all languages is associated with the region, that means there's a touch of negative in there as well. Um, Qatar, um, not surprisingly for a very small country, doesn't tend to feature very high, um, but it does pretty well considering its small size. On the other hand, we can't forget that those three countries already mentioned have all got a great deal of hard power in the form of um, of uh, economic power, and so they're able to punch somewhat above their um, demographic weight. Yeah, for sure. Um, and uh, then you have the smaller, uh, con smaller countries like Bahrain, mm. uh, for example, which I know has worked hard to, uh, in, in, in terms of cr cranking out um, branding materials to try and uh, explain. Mm. Uh, the country. In fact, all of those countries have been great employers of uh, branders and have spent a lot on exhibits, and mm -hmm. um, but uh, seem to be showing the limits of what those things uh, those things can achieve. 
Absolutely. Um, the, the, um, the, the countries of the Gulf are, um, well, let's not mince our words, they're suckers for Western consultants um, and they're suckers for PR and propaganda and advertising in all of its forms. Um, uh, why? Well, because they, I think all of them at some level have recognised um, that they can't really achieve their ambitions um, without a greater measure of soft power than they currently enjoy. I mean, you take as perhaps the, the, the most prominent example at the moment um, is uh, Saudi Arabia's Vision 2030, which, uh, like most of the longer term economic plans for most of these countries, is about diversifying the country away um, from, from petrodollars. Uh, because they know um, that that's not going to last for very much longer. And they're increasingly sitting on a stranded asset. So what can they do? Well, they can certainly follow Dubai's example um, and start to turn themselves into desirable tourist destinations. But if you look at um, Saudi Arabia's Vision 23rd, um, this, is the, uh, this is the brainchild of um, Prince Mohammed bin Salman, um, MBS as he's known, um, almost none of the aims that are expressed in that document would be achievable given Saudi Arabia's current negative image. Um, it would not be possible to achieve any of those aims unless it were first possible to improve the country's standing and make people think new and better and more positive things about it, see it as a constructive player rather than just a rather frightening mystery. Um, to a degree, it's circular. So if you do manage to get more tourists, that will increase more, uh, that will create more understanding. And as there's more understanding, that will create more positive feelings. We always see that virtuous circle, but it's a terribly difficult uh, process to get going. Well, I think, I think that in this, um, well, you and I agree that reality is always more helpful than uh, just image and making claims about yourself. And probably the biggest step forward in the image of that region was the conclusion of the Abraham Accords and this amazing spectacle of real exchanges beginning between the Gulf countries and Israel, uh, yeah. Israelis uh, going to uh, 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 Dubai uh, on, on, on vacation, uh, Israel being represented at the uh, Dubai Expo uh, yeah. and um, and dialogue coming out of um, uh, th that really quite remarkable um, uh, diplomatic uh, diplomatic moment. Mm. I mean, to me, that's where you will see an improved um, Im improved image for for the region. I, I I beg to differ ever so slightly, or rather, I would I would beg to be a little more precise about that. It's only a certain uh, part of the general population that knows about and is interested in and appreciates such things. Because this is, the Abraham Accords is pure international relations, it's, it's international politics, a topic which the majority of the world's population is unaware of and not very interested in. So the signing of an accord, and even as you say, some visible manifestations of a warming of relations uh, bet between the Gulf Arab states and, and Israel, it's not really enough still to feel like a major change. As far as pe most people in the surveys are concerned, um, it, it, it's still, Israel-Palestine hasn't been solved. And, and, and that's, um, 
so I, so I think what you're describing there, that, that sense of change, that sense of hope, it's not reflected in the overall figures in the Nation Brands Index. And that's because we're looking at a broad cross-section of the populace in all of the countries where we carry out right. the study. Um, I think if we were to focus in on uh, better educated, more widely traveled, um, more internationally educated people, yes, indeed, we would see a change. But it's not, a, it's not an instrument of, of mass awareness. It's... Uh, um, it's a bit elite, that fact. And so the, so the question becomes, what can those countries do that will really grasp the imagination of the world, not just the people who understand politics or read about um, agreements between, between sovereign states? Um, as I said before... Now, using, the- using my, my mind-reading skills, Simon, I, mm. I would uh, predict that you will not say host the World Cup as being the ideal thing that a country in the region should do to uh, persuade the world it's a lovely place. Uh, oh, do Lord. I do I guess correctly? Oh, Nick, I don't know. I mean, what do I know? I I, I sort of have a feeling that you can't buy love, um, and most in most cases in the past, um, hosting those major sporting events tends not to give a very good return on investment. Uh, what you tend to do is you tend to spend an enormous amount of money um, shining a very strong light on the things that made you unpopular in the first place. Uh, the countries that that do well um, out of these mega events are the ones that have nothing to fear uh, from the um, close attention of, of, of the world's TV yeah, cameras. Like, uh, Germany in the early 2000s, for example. Right. Like the uh, Sydney Olympics. Really, yeah, the Sydney Olympics or the yes. Barcelona Olympics. The, you know, those countries have got nothing to fear. It, the, the TV crews can go wherever they want. Uh, and, and, and the Spanish and the Australian governments know that there's nothing there that anybody will see that will shock them. Um, it'll, the more they see, the more they'll like it. Um, a very different matter when there's a lot of things there that people might be shocked uh, in, uh, to see, whether it's poverty, whether it's inequality, uh, or whether it's simply um, emptiness, um, vast areas of empty desert um, without much sign of life. Now, that's not negative, but it's certainly not positive, and it's not going to change anybody's mind. If they see hours and hours and hours of TV in Qatar, showing um, nothing much going on and then suddenly you've got cities which are packed with um, very wealthy young men driving um, gas guzzling four by fours that's not going to change anything and no doubt those foreign tv crews are going to be looking for examples of inequality the poor treatment of migrant workers migrant and all of the workers, other issues yeah. that, that people want to know about because those are the hot yeah well i remember the migrant worker issue was presented at the moment of the uh, Qatar bid for the for the for the World Cup, and the, the World Labour Organization issued a prediction of, of how many migrant workers would die uh, mm. during the construction of uh, uh, facilities for the uh, for the Soccer World Cup, and so uh, the issues have been hand in hand. And, and uh, I think Qatar had a had an opportunity to um, show great care for its migrant workers and uh this doesn't seem to have happened consistently should we say that yes. the issue is still there uh, yes. all these years after after we knew the world cup was going to uh, qatar mm-hmm. i think i think one of the things that um some of these countries uh, in their 
zest for communication and their hunger for hiring more and more Western consultants and Western agencies to, to push out nice pictures of the country and, and good news stories. What they sometimes fail to appreciate is that if part of the one of the components of your negative image is a touch of fear, then spending more money, in other words, demonstrating more and more of your hard power is likely to make things worse, not better. And Saudi Arabia in particular, um, a lot of people, uh, so the research suggests, are a bit scared of Saudi Arabia. Um, and the, all the Saudis I know, bless them, it never even crosses their mind that anybody would be scared of them. Um, they think that they're insufficiently respected. They think that they're insufficiently noticed. They think that people just simply don't appreciate them or understand them properly. And when you show them the stats and you say, look, it's nothing like that at all. They're very, very well aware of you. They do respect you, but in a rather uh, fearful kind of way. And they think that you wish us harm in the West. They think that you represent a threat to us. And therefore, spending enormous amounts of money on um, buying the sides of buses in London uh, to, to trumpet uh, your brand new city, which is costing tens of billions, um, and, and expensive tourism campaigns and all the rest of it, it, has, it runs the risk of making things worse because you're just reminding people how rich and powerful and therefore scary you are. It's not making yes, you... No, well, I, I agree. Uh, and I, I think that uh, this is a region where um, the, the concept of reputational security that I've been trying to develop re really fits. If you yep. talk to governments in the Gulf region about, uh, for example, free media, they will say, we would love to have free media, but mm. our security situation does not allow it. And so, for example, Bahrain, there are uh, journalists in exile, journalists in jail, but there aren't journalists operating freely inside the, inside the country. Now, to me, that's a threat to the reputation of, of Bahrain mm. uh, and a security threat to the reputation of Bahrain that these countries need to be, um, they are, they are, um, they will they will find it harder to get what they want on the international stage to build corporations, uh, the sort of cooperation on which uh, security can depend uh, if they are um, uh, seen as compromising on 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 human rights. And at the moment, that um, uh, that um, uh, dimension is 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 missing. The clearest example of this is the way is the Khashoggi case. And yeah. the, the way in which Saudi Arabia or, or elements within Saudi Arabia um, took uh, um, this extraordinary, committed this extraordinary crime, uh, showing a complete disregard for human rights and for diplomatic practice. Uh, and that's, we can see that that's very hard to come back from in terms of uh, reputation and um, the the consequences have been present around um, whether MBS was going to be welcome in London for the uh, for the funeral of the Queen, for example. Yes. Uh, the whole Khashoggi case was revisited as part of that public discussion. Yes, it, it's it's so very interesting, isn't it? This this enormous cultural divide. There seem to be um, a bunch of countries, or at least governments, or or, or government officials who who 
believe deep down um, that the way to reassure people is by demonstrating your strength. Um, and that's exactly the opposite of what works in, in, in a bunch of other cultures. I remember, for example, uh, when I was working in, in Mexico and I was um, helping the Mexican government to organize uh, the uh, COP16, um, the, the, the climate change summit, uh, which was held in Cancun in Mexico. Um, you remember you were, you were around at the time as well. And I remember having this <laughs> surreal conversation with the then um, security minister. Um, some research had been carried out, which showed that people were very nervous about their safety when they visited Mexico. And um, the, the discussion was around how we could reassure people um, that Mexico was in fact a relatively um, safe country, or at least the places people would be visiting. And the, um, uh, the security minister uh, insisted on placing a, a large field gun, a howitzer, in the middle of the road from uh, Cancun airport, um, between the airport and, the, um, uh, and the, the location of the summit, manned by soldiers masked in balaclavas, pointing this piece of heavy field artillery towards the arriving tourists. And, um, and I, I said to him, I said, what are you trying to do? And he said, I'm reassuring people. I'm showing them that we've got the situation under control, that the forces of law and order are strong enough to tackle uh, any uh, violence or threats. Um, and I had the greatest difficulty getting him to understand that in fact, if you come out of an airport in a foreign country and are faced by soldiers um, pointing a very large uh, weapon of war at you, it will have exactly the opposite effect. And to some extent, I think that's the same thing um, that's often going on in, in the Middle East. This idea that you've got to reassure people by showing them how strong you are. Um, and often that's really the wrong thing to do. I don't think you reassure people by pretending to be weak either. Um, but I think that it's um, it's certainly not going to happen by demonstrating your strength. Well, I think that sometimes you can get a windfall from being um, less coordinated than people might expect. And part of the reason that it's possible for the European Union to have such uh, a, 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 a positive reputation, I think, is that it isn't really intimidating to, to, uh, to, to, to people. No, but if the European Union was marching in step in the kind of fantasy of a, a eurocrat, uh, uh, you know, after a heavy session in, in a Brussels barroom, you know, what he would fantasize about everybody all doing the same things at the same, that would be completely terrifying to the, the rest of the world. The fact that it debates, that it thinks, that it changes around language, that, that is inherently um, unthreatening and helpful to its reputation. The other secret of the European Union is the great strength of cities, mm. and you know it, 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 you you have the the um, wonderful feeling people have for the cities of Europe around the world, and it's interesting to see the emergence of the cities of the Persian Gulf. Oh, sorry, the Gulf mm -hmm. uh, starting to have that kind of city reputation, especially uh, Dubai, which is becoming proverbial almost as the, the home to these uh, amazing um, uh, buildings and, um, uh, and, and, and opportunities for 
for, for tourism. So what's your take on, on, on Dubai? I think Dubai is a very remarkable place. I, I, um, I, I think it's one of a tiny, tiny, tiny number of places um, in history that have succeeded in deliberately constructing an international reputation for themselves, um, almost from nothing. Um, this is a city that has set out um, to uh, create itself as a glo- as a global destination um, and to build an image with that. And it's succeeded to a remarkable degree. It proves um, yet again um, the commonplace that it's easier for a city to earn a good reputation for itself internationally than it is for a country for the simple reason that cities don't practice international relations. Um, they don't go in other countries, they don't do things that are, that are perceived directly to impact people in other countries. So they are harmless players in the way that nation states find it very difficult to be, because nation states are international actors, whether they like it or not. Um, cities, uh, to, to a less a less visible degree, um, and uh, of course, Dubai has had the advantage of an almost limitless supply of money and has been able to turn itself in a very short space of time into a pleasure ground for um, for, for wealthy Westerners, um, and not just Westerners. It's done a really, really good job of that. I think what, what the UAE as a whole um, lacks and has always lacked, as far as I can tell, um, is a, a talent, a knack for, for strategy. Um, I think they do an awful lot of very clever things. I think they're very... I'm going to be really catty here, but I think they're very good at buying good creative ideas from Western consultants. Um, and periodically they come up with something like, you know, Minister for the Future. Um, and people read about it and they say, oh, that's cool. That's a forward looking kind of country um, slash city. Most people don't really realize what it is. Um, and that's the sort of place I'd like to associate with. Um, but it never seems to be part of a, co- a coherent strategy. It never ends up joining up with the other clever, funny, amusing things they do um, and tells you a consistent, powerful story about why I should care about this place. It seems to be a, a constant firework display. You know, one day it's... But is that then because they're doing it for the wrong reason? They're not doing it because it's part of a connect collected strategy. They're doing it as a... A trial balloon, and they really don't want to change. What they want is to ensure the ongoing power of the people who've always had uh, power and uh, an influence, and um, that the, 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 there's zero commitment to what we would be hoping for, which is um, uh, something um, closer to. Um, a, a democratic life where everybody, for example, is equal under the law. Now, mm. that's one of the one of the the, the foundations of um, British life, life in the U.S. Uh, and in Europe as across Europe. But it's something missing in the Middle East, where you know that um, the royal families are not subject to law. Uh, and are able to break the law with impunity, or members of royal families have, uh, do outrageous things mm. uh, in these countries. With the yep. McNamara case that's been in the papers in Britain, as uh, you know, w- just one example of 
this. So um, th this surely is a, a, an underlying problem that you can't you can't move forward through history just with gestures. Hmm. No, I think that's right. I mean, to answer your question, I, I don't know. You may well be right that that's the reason why there seems to be very little strategy going on here. I don't feel I know the country well enough to be able to judge, but it wouldn't surprise me. It does bear all the marks of um, an, an attempt to create an image without necessarily conducting the progress, the reforms, uh, the real changes underneath that would make it um, long lasting. And um, I've always felt that the image of, of Dubai and the UAE more broadly, and of course this applies to a degree to Abu Dhabi and the other Emirates as well, um, is that it's um, it's a sort of, you use the word balloon, it, it, it is a bit like a balloon. It's an artificially inflated construct, uh, the positive image. Uh, it hasn't been earned over time. It's not connected to anything very deep and cultural, or at least nothing positive that's deep and cultural, and therefore could at any moment be punctured if it's not kept constantly artificially inflated by regular applications of, of money. Um, and, and when there was a financial crisis a few years ago uh, in the Emirates and, uh, and, and the, um, Abu Dhabi had to come in and finish off the, uh, the Burj Khalifa, um, it was evident how quickly the, the good image of Dubai began to deflate. Now, maybe it's a kind of clever confidence trick that you keep it artific artificially inflated for long enough for it to somehow become uh, a fact, a, a rigid thing. Uh, people often compare Dubai to Singapore, but they really couldn't be more different. All they have in common is that they're both well-known and somewhat admired city-states. But Singapore has been earning that image for a very long time through at least one interpretation of the notion of good governance. Um, I'm not sure that Dubai can claim that. I think Dubai has just made itself into a very attractive product. And who knows, maybe that's a way of doing it. But I do entirely agree with your with your reservations um, about the uh, the lack of citizen justice that that underlies it. But then again, uh, we're talking about a different culture, a different anthropological yes. profile, and therefore a different pact between the population and its leaders. It would horrify most Western Europeans um, to be forced to live in a country where um, not everybody is equal in the eyes of the law. But in the countries where these kinds of situations prevail, that's what the culture tells people to expect and that's what people accept um, on the whole. Of course, there are dissenting voices, but the, the anthropology of the society tells you this is high power distance. We don't expect our rulers to conform to the same rules as we do. We don't expect them to behave as we do. We expect them to take on huge burdens, which we ourselves would not want to take on. Um, and, and so forth. So it's a very different conception of society. This is not to excuse or to justify any of it, but just to explain it. Yes. And, but then uh, what you see is that where those worlds come into contact um, with the outside uh, mm. or with uh, that there's going to be friction. Of and um, if you want a good reputation among the people who behave differently, you have to adapt to that. You have to and, you have to be uh, bicultural. Otherwise, you're going to you're you're going to be perpetually um, uh, open to to criticism, and people, as we know, are not stupid, uh, mm. and can see who's working to the collective benefit in this world, and who is um, who is who is not, 
who needs to do more mm. uh, for the collective benefit and who um, can do more for the collective principles of uh, human rights. Yeah, yeah. The, surely so the most... I guess we... <laughs> Sorry. I was, going, I was going to challenge your last word with another last word, um, simply to say that surely the most valuable attribute that any state can have, not just amongst its diplomats, but also amongst its leaders and its thinkers and its politicians, is the ability to think outside their own culture when dealing with other cultures. Um, because that is nine times out of 10, the real issue, the absolute failure to see that there are other models out there and perhaps people yes. are conforming to other sets of rules and norms and understandings of life on earth that simply aren't the same as yours. And if we could all become a little bit better at understanding that, then we could have much more profitable dialogues. Well, that I agree with. And on that point of agreement, that's all we have time for this week. Thank you so much for listening. I'm still Nick Cole. I'm still Simon Anhalt. <laughs>